Amen. Many years ago in, the, in a city in America, I believe it was in Philadelphia, there was the discussion of having D.L. Moody come to be part of an evangelist citywide campaign. And there was the group of pastors who were coming together, and one young minister who did not like D.L. Moody said, well, why Moody? Everyone gets Moody. Does D.L. Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? Everyone's, oh, young man, being bold and a little bit brash. An old godly minister spoke up and he says, no, young man, he does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. See, the unwise young minister had his reasons for not liking Mr. Moody, and Mr. Moody was a powerful, powerful preacher. He was a shoe salesman turned evangelist turned pastor, and it was because the Holy Spirit got a hold of his life. See, it is one thing to resist a minister. It is something altogether different to resist the Son of God. And that's what we see this morning in these religious leaders. And we're looking at the leaders questioning Jesus' right to act as he did. And so we're entering a new section here that covers a span of two chapters, and it's all about Jesus answering questions. It includes questions on Jesus' authority, which is our text this morning. Questions on salvation, money, the resurrection, and his return. And so we're going to begin with the confrontation that really kicks off this conversation in verses 1 through 4. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also ask you this one, th- this one thing, and you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And so we see this confrontation, and it is where the chief priests come to Jesus, and they really are unhappy. We're transitioning away from the cleansing of the temple, and that is really what this is all about. Jesus has walked into the temple. He has chased out the money changers and, and, and taken those who are buying and selling and, and removed them from the premises, and he has cleansed the temple from their unrighteous and unbiblical practices. And so what happens is what replaces that, that, uh, that those businesses in the temple is Jesus himself teaching. So the animals are kicked out, the business is kicked out, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests, and their, their unwise and unbiblical practices are out, and here comes the Son of God, and He fills the space. And He is in the temple every day, teaching. And what He is teaching and preaching is the gospel, which is a salvation through Jesus Christ. This is not a new endeavor. I think a great verse that explains the ministry of Jesus from the beginning to the end is Luke 8.1, which reads, Now it came to pass, afterwards he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. That's his mission. He went to every city, every village, 
He's all throughout the whole land of Israel, and he is giving them the good news. And he is now in Jerusalem, and we have seen the hardness of Jerusalem's heart. Oh, they're excited to welcome him in through the triumphal entry, but Jesus knows the truth of their hearts. They are hard, and they do not want him as Savior. They only want him as political Savior. I want you to see that moral conditions are never to be a deterrent to preaching the gospel. See, the reality is Jesus knew the hard hearts of Jerusalem, and it did not stop him from preaching the truth to them. He's in the temple every day, preaching the truth, teaching them. And I will tell you that the hard hearts of the secular humanists around us should not keep our mouths silent. Because the reality is this. If we're wavering and speaking because of their hard hearts, there is nothing that will change the heart of a secular humanist from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh but the gospel. That is it. And so we must not allow the, the, the moral condition of their heart to determine whether or not we speak. In fact, we are, we are told that we are not allowed that to keep us from speaking. We are told to go and to preach the truth. We are to make disciples in every nation. And so we are to give the gospel to those who are lost and perishing. That is our mandate. And so while Jesus is teaching... He is confronted by the chief priests along with the elders and scribes. Now, who are these men? We have to understand who they are to get a grasp of what's really happening here. The chief priests are those who belong to the family of the high priests. And so just as in our culture in America, where there is a former president, they still go by the title Mr. President. It's a term of respect and honor. Well, once you were the high priest, you still went by the term, the title, high priest. So that is why you have Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. But you also have Annas, who is the previous high priest. And so you see there's two high priests. Well, how is that? Well, Annas is no longer the high priest, but he has the title of respect. Well, these chief priests, they're, they're the family members of Annas and Caiaphas. And so they come to confront Jesus. And they are not the -the run-of-the-mill priests who are sweeping the floor of the temple and polishing utensils. These are the big dogs. These are the the top dogs. And and they are not used to being opposed by anyone, and they are most certainly not coming in peace. They are angry. But second, we see the scribes. These were the experts in the Jewish law. And if you had a question about the law, these were the ones who would answer it. And so this is why you see Jesus being questioned by the scribes. They were the lawyers, the experts. And that's why Jesus will in turn question them to see how they understand it. And they also had some major clout. Because they're the ones who was determining what was right, what was wrong, and what practices were allowed on the Sabbath, and which ones weren't, and which ones were right worship, and which ones weren't. It was always according to how they saw it, though. And so they had some major clout. Unfortunately, they were leading Israel into idolatry with their legalism. And finally, you have the elders. They were the well-respected and aged men of the community. These were the men you looked up to as a commoner. And so while they were not priests or scribes, they had major clout. You were not to trifle with these men. If If you cross an elder, you would have serious repercussions. You'd be in big trouble. 
Now, to understand what these men are, MacArthur explains that this assembly was not just this group of men coming together, but they were actually part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Judaism. And MacArthur says, though these men disagreed on other matters, they were united in their determination to execute Jesus. So we're going to put, together, put, put aside our little differences, our small differences, for our big goal of getting rid of Jesus. The thought. And so this is the group that approaches Jesus. And what is the reason for their confrontation? And that word confrontation, by the, by the way, means to show up with suddenness. Out of nowhere. It's the same word that describes the angel in Luke 24, uh, where, where the ladies are going to the tomb, and then the angel appears. That's the word. It's suddenly. And it's the same idea. And so they confront Jesus, and it's to suddenly stand before him and to oppose him. And they are not happy with what Jesus has done at the temple because he has just taken a lot of change out of their pockets. And they are coming to question him. And they are expecting answers. Because that's how it worked with them. They are the top dogs. Everyone listened to them. And no one dared give lip service, lip against them. You didn't talk back to them. He certainly didn't oppose them. And so the group is really designed to show a unity with them to intimidate Jesus. We're right, you're wrong. We've got it on the inside, you're on the outside. You need to submit yourself to us, we will never submit to you. That's what's happening. They are, they are showing him that they are the ones not to be trifled with. I mean, after all, they're the high priests in the, fam- the, the high priestly family. They're, they're the experts in the law. They're the most respectable of the people. It was really a, a great show. And we have some of the same nonsense taking place in our world. Everyone's together. It's the mob mentality. If you're not with the mob, you're against the mob, and you'll get run over. Now, one thing I will tell you is I don't think the mob is actually as big as they want you to think the mob is. But see, they have the media. And if you don't listen to the media, just, just go through with your life and do your thing. And when people bring up the nonsense and you know the truth, give them the truth. But see, that's the way our world works. So we gotta be, everyone's got to be on the same side, our side. And if you're not on our side, we're going to cancel your podcasts. We're going to cancel your television shows. We're going to cancel your radio stations. We're going to cancel you all together. And they can't stand it when something as simple as truck drivers gather together and say no. And that's what happened in Canada. But see, the the, the fact is, we have politicians who play the game of what is socially acceptable. And they talk a big game and they don't do much. They make it look like they've actually done something when in reality, they most of the time, they just waste taxpayers' money. Because they just got to play the show. It's the same nonsense that was taking place in Jesus' day. It's all for show. And nothing was being done. Don't give in to that mob mentality. Our Lord didn't. He had truth on his side. He knew it. And remember, those who are not with the Lord are always on the wrong side of the issue. And death will always be the result. 
And so they find Jesus and they begin to speak with him. Now Mark tells us that they found Jesus as he was walking through the temple, so he's in between his teaching session. And they find him and jump in front of him. And they confront him. The idea was to catch him off guard. And they start up with their request. And the first two words give you a sense of how they feel about Jesus. Tell us. Tell. Open your mouth. Speak. Start talking. Fess up. Give the details. Not just tell. Tell us. You are going to answer to us. We're the ones you should be answering to. Where do you get the idea to pull off these kind of stunts? Where do you get the idea that you can get rid of our business and take care of of things the way you just did? Who do you think you are? And more importantly, who do you think we are? I mean, that's the idea here. I mean, the attitude of their question is is really mirrored by the Hebrew man who responds to Moses in Exodus 2.14, where he says, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? I mean, that's that's the defiance here. Tell us, they demand, by what authority you are doing this, these things. And here's what they're really asking. What authority do you have that you think you can waltz into our temple and you can shut down our business? Where do you get the idea you can do that? Now that word authority that they're using here is granted power or authority. Now catch that. These men were all about authority that was granted from someone higher up. And there was no one higher up in the Jewish religion than who? Them. Where do you think you are going to get this authority? You didn't come to us. Well, can you just imagine Jesus in this moment? What do you mean? Come to you. My authority is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. I mean, the the patience of God as Jesus dealt with these fools. I mean, all he had to do was say, I was there before the world was founded. But no, he, he lets them carry on. And they follow up this question, or who gave you this authority? Because they're all about this authority coming from someone. I mean, what an opportunity for Jesus to preach the gospel, right? I mean, on a wide open door, a moment for him to just take that opportunity. I mean, don't you wish people just asked you that kind of a question? Why is it that you pray every day over your lunch? I mean, what's up with that? That's a golden opportunity. Hey, why don't you talk poorly about Billy or Susie? I mean... Don't, don't you think they're horrible people? Or your boss, man, he treats you like dirt. Why don't, you, why don't you respond poorly towards him? Give back what he gives you. I mean, these are opportunities for open doors. But see, Jesus doesn't take the bait. Because here's, he, he knows what's going on. These men are playing their foolish game again. He's, he's been around with these men. Time and time again. And it's the same foolish game. Why don't you do what we want you to do? These men show up with their gang, talking about authority, thinking they're going to impress and intimidate Jesus. And it worked with everyone else. Why not Jesus? I mean, they even got Caesar to pull back Roman soldiers on the Sabbath because they were causing such a fuss. 
Caesar would even bow down to us a little bit. Why won't you? Well, because he's greater than Caesar. Let's just be honest. But this is where these men just simply cannot stand the fact that Jesus will not submit to them. And by the way, there was only one other man who stood up to these men like Jesus did. That was John the Baptist. And in John 1.25, they go to John and they ask the same question a different way. Because John's got all these people out, he's baptizing in them. And they see these people going away from them and to John, and they're not happy. And they go and they ask John, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah or the prophet? I mean, here's what they're saying. Where's your authority, bucko? That's what they're asking. See, John elicited the same response from these men because he too was anointed with a power of God that they did not have. And this was a threat to the leaders. And they went out to John to try to shut him down. Oh, that worked oh so well for them. He, in turn, looks at them and calls them a brood of vipers. <laughs> calls them sons of snakes in front of all the people. He don't talk to the leaders like that. John did not care. John did not play their games, as Jesus doesn't. He condemned them in front of all the people. And so here we are now, a few years later, and you have Jesus has far more authority and far more power than John ever did. And he has now walked into their territory as they saw it, disrupted their business, embarrassed their name, and they want answers. Do you see the problem? Who are they all about? (laughs) Themselves. But rather than giving a direct answer, Jesus does something altogether different. He does not walk through that seemingly open door. Instead, he sets out to expose the hypocrisy of these men, and he confounds them yet again. And so Jesus' interaction with these men shows his genius. If you want my answer, I will have yours first. Now, please see this. (laughs) They want to know where Jesus' authority is? You know what he does? He uses his authority over them. You want my answer? You first. He puts himself in charge. And so we've seen the confrontation. Now we're looking at the conundrum Jesus puts these men in in verses 4 through 7. But he answered them and said, I also ask you one thing and you answer me. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men... All the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered they did not know where it was from. This is one of my favorite interactions of Jesus in all of the Bible. Because what happens is he takes the most learned, intelligent, educated men, and he, with one question, shuts them down. Understand education is important. It is not everything. This is why we can send young men to seminaries and they can come back worse off than when they first went. Because education is not everything. And so if you have been blessed by God with a great mind, understand this. Your intelligence 
is not going to make your ministry powerful. It certainly won't get you into heaven. These men were brilliant. And they were lost in their sin. And so, as of late, my prayer has not been, Lord, make, you, make me more intelligent. My prayer has been simply, Father, would you give me the power of God as I preach and as I minister? Not my own power. I don't want to manipulate my own power or, or coerce over you. I, I want simply the power of God to be in the ministry of this church. Because that's what brings the results. And the, the question of the conundrum is really, it's quite simple. The baptism of John. Heaven or men? Where is it from? And the question is really not that hard to answer. But I want to explain to you why it was not so simple for these educated men. See, the baptism of John is distinctive. It's separate from all the other baptisms that were out there because the baptism of John was the baptism of repentance. It was really a baptism of purity, preparing the people for the ministry of the Messiah. And so he was a preacher who was fiery, confrontational, convicting, and unapologetic. Everything our world can't stand. And everything the leaders of the first century did not want. He stepped on anyone and everyone's toes, including Roman soldiers. He looked at them square in the eye and he says, you be content with the wages you have and don't go around intimidating people, people to get your way. I mean, these are Roman soldiers. Didn't care. In fact, he, was the, he went right to Herod himself, stuck his big hairy finger in his nose and said, you are a sinner, and you need to give your brother's wife back. Well, that didn't go over so well. Went, got put into prison. But John didn't care. He did not care. If you offended his Lord, you got the message. You were told of your sin. He had no problem telling the people that unless they repented, they'd suffer the wrath of God. He, had, he took the false teaching of the scribes, which taught that because you're a son of Abraham, you'd go right to heaven. No, no, no. John said, no, no, that's not the issue. God can raise up children of Israel from these stones, he said. It's not, not your, your, uh, your ancestry, it's heart belief. It's obedience. It's convicting preaching, powerful preaching. I mean, the answer is obvious, right? You don't look at people like this and tell them what's up. If it's your own authority, unless you really are that self-deceived. But John was taking scriptures and applying it to these men. But see, the priests, the scribes, and the elders, it couldn't be that simple, because here's why. John looked at Jesus, and he said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. With that declaration, he was declaring Jesus Christ is the Messiah. When all, all of his disciples started following after Jesus, people came and said, aren't you worried about it? John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. What? What are you saying? No, 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 I'm not here for me, I'm here for him. And I'm doing my job. If people are going to him, that means I've done my job. 
See, they knew exactly what John was saying. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised one of God. And they could not accept his message. And so by saying his authority is from heaven, and that, that is just simply the supernatural dwelling place of God, meaning that John's ministry was given the order, it was ordained by God, and he had the power of God on his life, and they couldn't say that. If he had the authority from men, he was just simply the most bold man ever to walk the face of the earth. But the genius of this question dooms these men. Because no matter what they answer, they're in trouble. They can't give an answer without repercussions. They can't agree with John when he said in John 3.27, a man cannot, can receive nothing unless it's given to him from above. See, even the authority these men had had been given their authority from God. And they would agree with that, right? Well, yeah, of course. But they didn't agree with it when it came to John or Jesus or the apostles, later in Acts. But they have a problem. Look at verse 5. So Jesus asked them, where is it from? And they, and they reasoned among themselves. They get together in this little unholy huddle, okay? They come together. Let's put our, our heads together. Let's talk this through. The, the word reasoned uh, means that they're going to talk it through to come to a conclusion. They can't be forthright. They can't come, come forth and give a straight answer because on either side they're in trouble. Here's the heart of the conundrum. If they say that his authority is from heaven, Jesus will look at them and he will say, why did you not believe him when he declared that I am the Messiah? But if they say from men, they're dead men, because the people hold John to be a prophet, and they'd stone him. So the issue is they have now to either choose between the best of two terrible options or create a third. Here's what these men discuss. And it's really interesting that they know the answer Jesus will approve. They, they know the answer Jesus really agrees with and believes and knows to be true. And I, I will say this. They know what Jesus is doing. By saying where John's authority came from, that's where Jesus' authority came from. And so for them to have to answer this question, they're answering their own question. And they don't want to do it. The answer is obvious that John's authority is from heaven. But listen very carefully. This is not some multiple choice question. It's not a fill in the bubble on the scan exam. It's not just give the right answer and move on. They can say the right answer, but they're going to be condemned. They'll be condemned for being hypocrites who denied the truth of John's teaching. And so what they'd be accused of is not believing. And that word believe means something to be true and regard as trustworthy. Well, they didn't believe John as trustworthy. We know that because they didn't listen to him. They could not say heaven because their lives simply did not match up to that confession. They could not stand the thought of Jesus condemning them, however. And, and I will say that what's interesting is that Jesus does not tell them where his authority comes from, but in the account of Matthew, what immediately follows this passage is Jesus says these words to them in Matthew 21, 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Now, now listen what he says next. 
but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward believe and repent. Here's what Jesus is saying. Tax collectors and harlots are better off than you. What? That was a knife to the heart of these self-righteous men. I mean, that's, that's a wowza. He, he gave them a zinger. Went right to the heart. But it goes to show that Luke's commentary on these men is dead on. In Luke 7.30, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Don't miss this point. It is the will of God that you repent. It is the will of God that you turn to Christ and be saved. And why is it that hell is so awful? It's because so many know the truth and simply go their own way. And they are not in the will of God, even though they know what it is. This is why it is so important you find yourself in a good church preaching the truth and not someone out there making you feel good about yourself. Because they'll make you feel good about yourself until your dying breath and you will stand before the judge and he will declare, you are a worker of lawlessness. Depart from me. If you have not repented and found yourself faith with your faith in Christ. Ken Hughes says, if they said John's baptism was from heaven, they'd be admitting that they had sinned. These self-righteous people had sinned. And they would be rejecting his baptism. Even worse, he says, they'd have to admit that Jesus was the Messiah because John announced, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they simply could not do it. Now the second part of this conundrum is also terrible. Because if they confess authority is from men... I mean, there's no heavenly authority in John's ministry. The people will stone him dead. The Jews were a rather excitable people, as we will see in the next coming chapters. It doesn't take much to whip them into a frenzy. And so the leaders are, they understand the relationship between them and the people. They need the people, but they also fear the people. This is why they didn't want any of the people going after anyone else because if they could keep the people kind of corralled in the fence that they made, they could control them. Jesus doesn't play their game. He comes to give them the truth. And so they know the people were persuaded. Now, the the words that they use shows exactly how much the people believed that John was of God. The people were persuaded. That word persuaded means to be convinced that something is true and act on it. Hence, they go out and they get baptized. And they'll stone you if you say he was not from from God. He was from man. They'll stone you for that because they're persuaded he was a prophet. And then you have to recognize that he was a prophet. One who spoke truth from God. And they didn't listen to him, which means they were, in essence, not just disobeying John, they were disobeying God. And remember, a prophet's job, 
was not primarily future, telling the future. I mean, John the Baptist did that one time that we know of. And that's where he spoke of Jesus coming, who's going to baptize with fire. And, and he was not even worthy of untying his sandal strap. Do you know what John's ministry consisted of? And what all the prophets' ministry consisted of? Calling out sin. That's what they did. And no one called out sin better than John the Baptist with the exception of Jesus. It's the reason why the Pharisees hated both John and Jesus. Because they called out their sin. Now let me give you some verses that make it clear that John's authority came from God. John 5.35, Jesus says, John was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Here's what Jesus says. Oh, you were excited with John for a time, but then you fizzled out. You didn't continue in the repentance that you went out to be baptized in. You went right back to your sin. You weren't changed. You didn't truly buy into his message. In Matthew 11.9, Jesus asked, what did you go out to see? A prophet? He says, yes, I tell you, but more than a prophet. It's here that that Jesus tells the people that John was the greatest man to have ever been born of a woman. (laughs) That's a high praise from the Son of God. We're we're talking, he, he elevates John the Baptist over Elijah, who was highly esteemed in Israel. And finally, consider how Herod felt about John. Matthew 14, 5. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they considered him a prophet. There's no doubt where John's authority came from. And so in verse 7, you see the result of their little powwow. They come out and they, we don't know. (laughs) These are intelligent men. But see, they know the trap when they see it. And they don't want to walk into it. What they're attempting to do is to remain neutral. But in essence, here's what they say to Jesus. We're not telling you. We're not answering your question. Kent Hughes writes these words. These men are liars and cowards. If they truly believed Jesus was a fraud, it was their duty to tell the people regardless of the personal cost. Here's the fact of the matter. They love themselves too much. They love themselves too much. And so they they play this dangerous game with God. A game they can never win. And so here's the reality about these men. And I fear that it's a reality of too many people in our day. They held too tightly to physical life to be able to have eternal life. They're holding on to the life that they know and they have made for themselves that they will not give it up to take the life God offers to them. Please hear me when I say that that could be you right now. It's not just something that takes place in the first century. It's not just religious leaders. It's the heart of men. Have you come to Jesus and surrendered all to him? Are you willing to allow the Lord to take your life and to remake it into something that he would have you be rather than what you want to be? Because these leaders, in their pride, they doomed themselves because they held too tightly to their own ideas, thoughts, and authority. 
And they would not submit to the Lord. So we have seen the confrontation and the conundrum. Now see the conclusion. Jesus, in verse 8, says to these men, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus responds to these men in kind. You don't want to tell me? Well, I'm not telling you either. If you give me no answer, I give you no answer. The fact is this. If they truly wanted to know the source of Jesus' authority, they would have answered the question. Because eternal life is that important. There are days you're wrong. There are days you sin. There are days you're selfish. There are days you feed your flesh and not the Spirit. You must admit you're wrong. You must come to the point of knowing that you are outside of the will of God. And here's the beauty of God. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sin. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But that takes humility. That takes going back to the person and saying, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? That takes takes the the hard work of self-introspection, self-reflection and saying, "I, I look at myself in the mirror of Scripture and I'm a mess. Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, Fill me that I would be changed. See, what they, these men do instead is they try to throw their weight around and they strike out. Ken Hughes says this was another authoritative slam dunk by this opposed gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This one in the temple courts. John MacArthur says, this is such a fantastic quote. He says, after three years of teaching and performing miracles, Jesus gave them sufficient proof he was the Messiah. There was no point in continuing to cast cast pearls before swine. They had willfully rejected all the light they had seen. There was no reason to give them more. Jesus knew they knew the answer. And they simply did not believe People live like this even today. They like to talk about God. They like to talk about religion and philosophy and, and they'll, they'll waste your time talking about what ifs and, and what about that and, and this over here, but they don't ever want to get serious themselves. They don't want to submit to God's authority. So they'll say things like, well, how do you know the Bible is true? It was written by men. Don't you know that? They will argue that salvation is not only through Jesus. As we sang this morning, it's not just he's the only way. There are many ways. And every person has to find their own truth. I'm so sick of that mantra, by the way. And some people will just be blunt enough to say they don't believe in God and they're not going to live that way. I mean, at least I have respect for those people because they come right out and tell you. But there are millions of people in churches all around the world and they play games with God. And here's how it goes. God, if you will, then I will. If you give me what I want, 
I'll give you your worship. If I get what I came for, then I'll get serious about my faith. God does not bargain with men. He gives you the truth and you will either believe it or you will reject it. He does not make deals. Some come to the Lord and they will say, hey, if I live a good life and I'm a good person, well then I expect to receive, fill in the blank, at its heart, that's worshiping a God other than Christ. That's idolatry. And we can all do it in little subtle ways. Today is February 6th. It's our sweet Vanessa's 10th birthday. And she was a child that almost was not. A few months before we found out that we were expecting Vanessa, we had a miscarriage. We lost a baby. And I remember going through this with the Lord. I'm your servant. What are you doing? I've given my life to you. All I expect in return is a healthy family. I didn't know what I was saying in the moment. I had an idol in my heart. I will serve if you will. George Dollar is a man I will never forget. In the most loving, kind way, sat me down and he says, Young man, you you have an idol. You're looking at all the wrong stuff. You don't serve because of what you receive. You serve because of who God is. And he alone is worthy. We cannot live that way. And by the way, we can, Maddie and I talk about this sometimes. I mean, Vanessa is a wild child. She's loud and goofy and silly and crazy. And we can't imagine life without her. And sometimes we think about that baby we lost. What would that baby have been like? One day we'll see in heaven. But see, some will say, well, I know my lives aren't, my life's not right right now, but at some point I'll get around to getting right with God. No, you won't. If you justify your sin, you'll live in it as long as you can. That is why the Bible says today is the Lord's day. Today is a day of salvation. And if you do not repent, you will be destroyed. And so as we look at the truth of this text today, what we see are leaders who go to Jesus and they say, you tell us where your authority is from. And Jesus says, answer your own question. John the Baptist, where is his authority from? And they would answer the question. So I turn to you and I ask, who is Jesus? Not who is he to you. In all honesty, the Bible is not concerned with who you think Jesus is. The Bible is concerned that you know the truth about Jesus. Who is Jesus? The evidence is sure. He is the Son of God. The one who has come to save the world. And so we must learn from the foolishness of the priests, the scribes, and the elders and see that God is not going to play your games. 
They lead only to the destruction of your soul. And some of you are playing the very dangerous game right now of thinking that coming to church is enough once a week to get a little bit of God and then to get you through the rest of the week. And your Bibles aren't open. Your prayer life is non-existent. The only time you think about praying is when the one call comes around and you think, oh, I've got to offer up a prayer here. But God wants more than that. He demands more. And so we have to recognize that is a game that we must not play. Some of us come to church and we think we're going to get a word that's going to give us a boost to get us over the hump. Listen very carefully. You don't come to get a word. You come to hear the word of God. And you're not looking for a boost. You, fill, you, you are filled with the Holy Spirit who gives you power. And don't be looking just to get over the hump because guess what's over that hump? Another one. And it might be bigger. Sometimes the, what we think is a mountain was really just an anthill because then, oh my goodness, look at that one. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not, not think good thoughts, send good vibes. No. Submit yourself to the word of God. Know the truth. Be saved. Fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God. Be obedient to His Word and you will be amazed at how God will lead you through the mountain. David says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your circumstances don't change, but your shepherd is there. Second, Christ is, Jesus Christ has authority and is the authority of God. He is the judge of all the earth and one day everyone will stand before him. Believers, we will stand before him and we will be judged for our works. Unbelievers will stand before him and they will be judged for their, their disbelief. Their, I mean, it's, it's works on both sides. Our works of faith before Christ, but the evil, the, the unrighteous men, their, their works of Disbelief. All men will stand before Christ to be judged. And I know many people get fearful over that passage in Scripture. Depart from me, I never knew you. Don't don't look at those words as closely as you look at the words he said before. You who do the will of my Father, or you who practice lawlessness, where are you? Are you doing the will of God? Not to earn salvation. That's not the point. Because if you're, if you're doing good works for salvation, you're actually a worker of lawlessness, thinking that you're good enough like Christ to earn salvation. No. But are you submitting yourself to the Lord and He's bringing fruit? Or are you living your own way, thinking you can get in on your own? Finally, for those of us who are in Christ, let us be faithful servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our business meeting, I'll begin with a devotional, and that is the point. That's our, that's our emphasis this year, faithful service. Faithful service. We must be serious about serving the Lord. He is going to look at us. He is going to see what we're doing as an assembly as a whole and as each individual member of this assembly. Will you be faithful?
There's a serious call on our lives to go out and make disciples of all nations. Cortland fits into that category. And so, who is Jesus? The Bible's clear. He's the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And His authority comes from God, for He Himself is God. And only those who can make those confessions understand the truth that they need Christ. And they are not enough. That is why Christ came to bring salvation. So when you hear people say things like, you're enough, well, they're looking over the fact that you're not. And you need a Savior. And that is not to drive you into despair. That's to drive you to hope. Christ is enough. He is the one who brings you to the Father. He is the one who brings you into heaven. He is the one who saves you. And because of that, of who you are in Christ, He is enough. And He has a final authority. I call you to turn and to look to Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And, and the fact that you have chosen in your wisdom to include this passage in your word, that we must not play games with you. We will never win. We think we are so cunning and so wise. And yet, when we peel back the layers, we see at its heart, we are arrogant and prideful, thinking that we are on the same level, worthy of worship and praise, and you will never share your glory with another. And so, Father, I pray for humility. I pray for wisdom. I pray for repentance this morning for those who need it. That if there are those who are playing games, that you would break the hearts, bring renewal, bring repentance, bring change. And Father, if necessary, bring salvation this morning. That all who are here would look to Christ, who has gone to the cross, shed his precious blood for their sin, died, and was risen again the third day. May we all look to him and find that he is enough. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand and join us.